0: Welcome to another edition of the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Poe. A lot to talk about since we last got together. The city of Seattle has hired a street czar. Homeless hotels, what's going on there? The Office of Police Accountability has come up with findings with regards to a number of accusations with the recent protests and two city officials are facing recall elections. So joining me now, as almost always, to break it all down, comes Matt Markovich. And, and let's start with the uh, street czar, Andre Taylor, who is uh, best known for being a police reform advocate here in the city of Seattle, now an employee of the city. Well, he's a contract employee. It's a, it's a
1: consulting position, a one-year, 12-month contract to be the very first street czar In Seattle. Now, Andre Taylor is a fairly well-known police reform activist. His brother was killed by police. Right, and he was uh, kind of the spearhead of I-940, which was a police accountability act that the uh, state voters passed in 2018. So he has some cred, so to speak, and that credibility is what he's parlaying. Uh, According to him, uh, that the city is going to pay him for uh, one year's worth of credibility to talk with people on the street and be kind of a liaison between the police department, city officials and gangbangers and the people who call street their home.
0: And this is worth a six figure salary. I know a lot of people have questioned that.
1: Yes, I mean that was a surprise. This was a, uh, but you you talk to him and you talk to the Department of he- uh, Dep- uh, Neighborhoods, which is actually has the contract with Andre. This is actually the second contract he's had with him and his group. Uh, Not this time, which he founded after his brother's death. Um, uh, Twenty nineteen, he had a one hundred thousand dollar contract f- from the city to sponsor a speaker series called the Conversations of the Street. Uh, where he had brought in people primarily of, of color to talk about specific issues. And the city sponsored that. They liked that. So they gave him $100,000 for that. Well, he's claiming that this is just a continuation of that contract, and there should be no real uproar about why he has got a new role now of a so-called street czar. Now, how did the street czar name come about? I asked him, and he says he looked to President Obama, who ha- seemed to have... An endless
0: amount of czars in his cabinet. (laughs) Uh, Not the least of which was a former Seattle police chief.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Kel Karolikowski was the
0: drug czar. That's right. So
1: why not have him in Seattle? So he pitched that to Mayor Durkin, according to his story. Mayor Durkin said okay. And he became literally the first street czar in
0: Seattle. And in the contract, it says street czar. So what reforms or what... Results is he promising with this job that's paying him quite a lot of money? Right now, according to the contract and the deliverables that are in the contract that I read, there aren't
1: any. Uh, The the deliverables are more about being a liaison and a go-between, trying to de-escalate situations. That was his big mantra. He was hired by the city to de-escalate situations, like CHOP. But we all know that when he went to CHOP, And it's well documented that the protesters claimed he didn't speak for them Mm -hmm. and that he was a mouthpiece for the mayor. Even at the time, I remember in uh, late June, uh, protesters were telling me that he was on the city's payroll and we had no evidence of that. But looking at the contract, uh, which was signed by the city on June 22nd. Um, it was June 29th when he went in there and was run out by the demonstrators. So he didn't sign the contract until the end of July, but it was in the works. So he essentially he was negotiating this $150,000 contract while he was in CHOP. Uh, and the agitators were claiming he rep- didn't represent them and he's a mouthpiece for the city. Well, he was actually...
0: Technically kind of working for the city, although he doesn't say that directly. And, and I do recall one day covering Chop. I don't know if you were there at the time, but he, Andre Taylor went down there with his group. There was uh, a few confrontations that led to fist fights. I mean, a, a number of fights broke out between his crowd and the crowd loosely saying organized uh, organizing the uh, protest. So and, and but he's pushing de-escalation.
1: Yes. I mean, that's what he's known. He claims he's known for. He can walk into any situation and, and uh, try and de-escalate. I mean, that's a term that was in the contract several places. And that when I spoke with him for the story, he talked a lot about that, that. He has experience doing that. He has a long history. He has a yeah, actually a criminal background in Los Angeles. Uh, so um, and he blames he says he's he has street cred and that's what the city's actually paying for him for and he went into very long dialogue uh, with me regarding that that um, that there's a double standard here that white people who are hired as consultants by the city people don't blink but when someone hires a black man to be a consultant for the city which technically what he is um, the media jumps all over it and uh, they're saying that it's a he's saying it's a double standard uh, because of this position I even said that to him, that uh, the, just calling himself a street czar is provocative. And he even agreed with that, that he wanted it to be a provocative
0: title. And so such, we're talking about it right now. <laughs> All right. I'm sure there's more to come on that. But also the Office of Police Accountability now out with some findings regarding a number of the protests that happened On or near the chomp? What's going on there?
1: Well, they've been looking into thousands of complaints, literally 18,000 complaints. A lot of them are repeated complaints, and they've been doing that since the protests began on May 29th of note. I'll put it that way. That's when they've kind of put the demarcation line, when they had that huge protest downtown. There was looting and fires and guns stolen from uh, officers' cars. And so since then, the public has been reporting a lot of cases of police uh, brutality uh, incidents involving unprofessional conduct. And so uh, on Friday, the OPA started
0: rendering some of its investigations findings, um, and a couple of them are somewhat notable. First- and it's important to no, know before we get into this the Office of Police Accountability is civilian oversight. This is not officers. Reviewing the actions of themselves.
1: Correct? That's correct. There are actually three oversight agencies in the city of Seattle: the OPA, Office of Police Accountability, the Office of Inspector General, and the Citizens Police Commission. The kind of the triad, and this is one of the three branches of government in, in a way. But essentially, it's a it's an office in the city of Seattle. Mm-hmm. The OPA is uh, run by Andrew Meyerberg. And of the first case, which was probably the most notable that came out of the clashes in late May, was the pepper spraying of a young child uh, by a police officer. And we all saw that viral video that that, uh, went all around the world. I mean, that that had 13,000 complaints for that one incident. So even as a citizen, you can complain about one thing, and so they... They, they, that's how it becomes 13,000 complaints, not 13,000 incidents. It's mm-hmm. about one it's just 13,000 times the case was referred to, the OPA. And the OPA found that there was no real wrongdoing by the officer, that it was an inadvertent pepper spraying. He was intentionally trying to hit a protester. The protester literally ducked and the pepper spray continued on and hit the child And that it was unintentional. They reviewed body cam video, and that officer in that case, for a, that was a, like you said, went worldwide, nothing's going to happen. It was an unfortunate accident, basically, what the OPA is saying in that take case. Um, but there was an allegation that an officer used excessive force by placing his knee on an individual's neck during an arrest. His knee was on that neck for 13 seconds, and they found that the use was uh improper and inconsistent with spd policy and training so the opa has also found that the officer made statements that violated the spd's professional policy so now that case is currently under review for discipline by interim chief andre diaz uh the opa tends to say here's what the discipline should be but in this particular case it did not so that's going to be the one that we're going to be watching. So
0: now, um, because the OPA f- had this finding, is the chief then required to take disciplinary no, action? No,
1: no. It, it, it's, it's purely a suggestion. But they've, it's a well-established agency that, that there's certain criteria. It's just not Mm willy-nilly that they decided certain things. So the chief does have to consider what the OPA's findings are and then render certain discipline. And it could be termination. It could be a a, a warning letter. You know, it it varies um, per case. And there were other cases like uh, 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 there was a claim that an elderly man was pushed down during a protest. Uh, Well, the OPA found that there was no conclusive evidence that even happened. They couldn't even find the video, the body cam video of that happening. They couldn't identify the officer or the man. So that was a case apparently got got a lot of publicity, but there was no evidence that it ever happened. And there was another case where a police officer yelled certain things I can't repeat. And to a protester. Well, this is a podcast. I suppose we could, but we're not going to. And the OPA found found that he was in violation of professional conduct um, and that the officer has been complying with the investigation. And the OPA is recommending a written reprimand on that. So Um,
0: with with these findings, you, you had two essentially that were. Dismissed and in, in two where there were findings where they need to have uh, you know further disciplinary action. Uh, granted, these just came out. How do you think this is going to play in the public? How do you think this is going to play with a lot of the protesters that are demanding police reform? Because as we said off the top, these are not recommendations coming from officers that are investigating themselves. These are civilians as part of one of those three oversight branches. Right. And I think there was, other than the
1: one where I talked about where, and that, and looking over, I, there are others, but I didn't want to go into them. Uh, the one that's significant is the one where the officer had the neck on somebody for 13 seconds. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. That's George Floyd right there, yeah. but not at that various length. Um, that's the one to watch, because now it's up to the chief to discipline that officer, um, because the OPA found it to be improper. I think of all the cases, people will focus on that. Well, how are you going to handle that? brand new interim chief Diaz of uh, discipline of an officer that's uh, strikingly similar to what happened in Minneapolis, except it was just didn't end in a death. Um, I think the public uh, will be watching these. I think the pepper spray one with the kid, which was so publicized, there may be some reaction to that, but I think if it was inadvertent, even at the early on when I was looking into that story way back in the early June... We were hearing that it was an inadvertent spray that the officer, and this is anecdotal from my sources in the city hall area, the officer felt horrible about that. You know, they didn't mean to hit the child, he
0: was trying to get the protester. Um, so we'll see how that one plays out. Uh, and then another story you've been working on as we uh, move on to a different topic homeless hotels this has been something you've been working on for a while what what's going on here because this has all sorts of implications for not only housing for the homeless but issues in the middle of a covid-19 pandemic so what's going on so this is all
1: related to covid um, you know back when covid hit us there was a lot of people in shelters several hundred if not 1100 people in the greater king county area in shelters and the, the 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 word came down from the CDC that you had to de-intensify. You had to spread people out. You just couldn't put them in congregate shelters. But if they were in congregate shelters, they had to have six feet of separation. And a lot of these shelters are just basically oversized dorm rooms with bunk beds. So that wasn't going to fly. So the county... Went ahead and spent a lot of money to create some deintensifying spaces for people to who don't have a place to isolate and quarantine if they needed to, or if they were in a congregate shelter, they had uh, didn't they needed an individual room, and so there's been a over the last several months there's been this growth of isolation recovery centers, uh, hotels for people experiencing homeless who don't have any COVID symptoms but just were in a shelter. And um, and assessment centers, all combined, the county has spent 12 million dollars on these facilities. No, several of them are hotels. Um, There's they, they bought the Econo Lodge in Kent to be an isolation remember recovery center.
0: The controversy over that.
1: Yeah, and that was 99 rooms, which is currently vacant right now. And you know we have this smoke filled air, you know, people need shelter away from the smoke well that's that's vacant right now. as is. A large tent in Bellevue, uh, which was like the sh- tent that he set up in Shoreline uh, for as, as a recovery center for people who are who are homeless and had, related to COVID, they exposed to COVID or anything. Well, they took that one down in Shoreline and put it kind of something similar in Bellevue. That's currently vacant. Um, there are trailers in West Seattle that were supposed to be for the homeless and
0: kind of overflow COVID related those are vacant so are we going to be starting to use these anytime soon well, or because I mean, the state of the, the city or the county spent a lot of money on this well the county just spent uh,
1: they, they had a facility down on 6th Avenue in Soto which was kind of a recovery center um, they just opened that up this week for people who are experiencing smoke issues and I'll get them off the street and stay there but it's only like uh, 80 people or so and um, and all told, they have rented out. Now this now that's just kind of like the COVID related. For people who are were in a shelter and just needed a place to stay and not be in a bunk bed situation, um, there are 650 of those people, and they're all in hotels. Um, they've rented out the entire Red Lion in in Renton. That's 225 rooms. The Quality Inn in SeaTac, That's a hundred rooms. They have a a facility in Issaquah, that's 100 rooms. Um, they have the Civic Inn downtown in, in in Lower Queen Anne and the Inn at Queen Anne. All those are, being, are housing people who were in shelters and they all have their own room now. They're off the street, they get three meals a day, they have their own room, they have a shower. And in my story, we talked to some of the people and they love it. Everybody thinks it's a great idea. Service providers say this is provides the stability that the homeless need.
0: Well, it's a first step towards permanent housing. Yeah, kind of I think. mean,
1: and, and, and they can shower, they can get ready for a job, you know. But, and you would think going way back to Mayor Murray days when called a emergency, you know, we would put people in hotels if there was a fire or something like that. Well, we never did this during the homeless emergency that was declared years ago, but we're doing it now because of COVID. So now... People are off the street, having de- some decency, and and um, having. I should say, um, they don't have the the ills of the street chasing them around. They have their own hotel room, a shower, three meals a day, some privacy, and that's huge privacy. Um, you know, they don't get they don't can't have visitors. You know, these places are basically run like a shelter. You can't have outside visitors come and visit people. But they're in there for months. And everybody I've spoken with, the service providers, the people living there, they love it. Well, here's the, here's the catch. Here's the other side. $4.5 million dollars the city, uh, excuse me, King County has spent on hotel rents up until this point. And most of this money is now is being paid by the CARES Act. Uh, King County got so federal two, funding. Yes, funding. yeah. Uh, by Congress because it has to be COVID-related. Well- king county got 260 million dollar check from the cares act for a variety of things and a lot of the money uh, for the hotels is being picked up by that, that that cares act well the rule is you have to spend that money by the end of the year i mean you got it now but you have to spend it it has to be done by year's end and if there's no another cares act by congress a lot of these people, according to Leo floor the head of the Department of Human Services and Community for the King County, they're going to be back in the
0: shelters and back on the street, So, unless
1: something else is new.
0: So how many people are, are we talking about? Because as it stands right now, it does not look like Congress is going to pass any kind of relief before at least the election, possibly in the lame duck session after that. So how many people are we talking about going onto the street January 1st? Well... Uh, that's uh, a good question. I mean, that uh,
1: right now there are 650 people that are staying in hotel rooms. The county has processed or had 1,000 people in these COVID recovery centers come in and go out over this time period. So there's like two populations there. But the people who were in the shelters that have their own hotel rooms, about 650 people. But that's a lot. Uh, for the amount of shelter space we've had in Seattle. We've never had enough shelter space for everybody. That's kind of goes without saying. But all that congregate shelter space is gone now in Seattle. And DSC's uh, director um, has said publicly he doesn't want to open the DSC main shelter, which is right across the street from the courthouse, ever again. And that this is what we need. We need to continue the hotel thing. So we asked, what are the changes? What could possibly... Allow this to happen if you don't have any COVID money from the federal government. Well, we spoke with the budget chairman for King County Council, Jeannie Cole-Wells. And she said, you know what, Matt? On June 11th, we got permission from the state legislature to impose an increase in the sales tax, the county sales tax, increase it by one-tenth of one percent, basically one-tenth of one cent. We have the authority to raise, raise that. Uh, if it's for housing purposes, and hotels would be covered that. And she's actually suggesting that the county go out and buy hotels because of all the businesses that have been hurt so bad in COVID, it's hotels. And she says uh, hotels are at dirt cheap prices right now. Um, and we could pick up a few hotels and use them as uh, homeless housing. So that's just her. Per- she's talking about it. We were the first to report that. Um, and uh, and uh, because the county just now got the authority to do
0: it for that purpose from the state legislature so we'll have to see how that turns out and finally before we let you go on wednesday a judge a king county superior court judge ruled that a recall petition against shama sawant can go forward now we've been talking about this for some time uh, mayor jenny durkin also facing a recall election but they're two very different things let's start with uh, the shama sawant recall election what how did this start how did this begin? Well, again, let me just put it this way: appeals, appeals, appeals. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the King County judge may have ruled
1: something, but that doesn't mean it's going to. You know, the recall effort will go right away. Uh, I fully expect appeals, um, as as what happened in Jenny Durkin's case. Uh, Shama Sawan is accused of using her position as a council member for doing unethical things. Leading a march, she will be participating in a march to Jenny Durkin's house. A, an address that is protected by actually a state mandate uh, to be kept private because she was a former U.S. attorney and there's uh, literally threats against her life and her family was in jeopardy. Well, they had, you know, a thousand people march to her house and Sawant gave a speech there. She also opened up uh, city hall doors one night so that protesters could go inside and hold a rally inside. Essentially, misusing her position as a council member, to do things that were uh, improper. Um, in order to recall, uh, in broad terms, in order to recall a politician, they have to have done some malfeasance. They have to do something that was illegal or unethical. They cannot be recalled because of a decision they make, it's not the, she's the recall effort with Swan. It can't not, be politically motivated. Yeah, it's generally. not about her politics, who what uh, political party she stands for, even how she conducts herself when the council meetings. It has zero to do with that. It, it has everything to do with a misuse of her office for the for power, for, you know, for what she does. You know, well, the
0: other uh, you know she's seen another a number of similar allegations for using city resources right. for campaigning, which is right. also illegal. The, right. the Probably the one that the law that most people are familiar with is the Federal Hatch Act mm-hmm. that prevents that, but we also have state laws against that as well. Mm-hmm. So she, and, and by the way, uh, because she
1: was an office holder at the time when she allegedly committed these acts of malfeasance, um, the city attorney isn't going to represent her going forward. So
0: the taxpayers are footing the
1: bill for Shama Sawant's defense. That's right, yeah. So. In the case of Jenny Durkin, it's a different, kind of a different story. She, uh, she had several allegations, uh, recall allegations, pinned against her in a court hearing, and the judge threw out all of them except for one, um, and it was a political decision. Uh, it, 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 that's what she's alleging. So she's now taken that case all the way to the state Supreme Court with her own attorneys. It's not the city attorney representing her, with her own attorneys. On the premise that you can't recall me based on a political decision I make. I make those decisions every single day. So if you don't like my politics, you don't like my decision-making, you vote me out of office. But you can't recall me because of that. So they're kind of two different issues right there.
0: And, of course, we're going to have to wait and see whether all of these get to the ballot. But I'm guessing just due to time constraints the shamisen wanted bare minimums. not going to be on this false ballot we're, we're less than two months away no yeah no way you know I mean
1: they have to have a signature gathering you have to have X amount of percentage of, of people who voted in the previous election to meet that minimum requirement to get it on the ballot uh, and things like that so I don't expect that but then again um, same with Mary Durkin her case was brought up several months ago and it's sitting in front of the state supreme court for a ruling right now so there's no chance of her going to the November ballot recall either. So it's it's way down the line that we're going to have all these cases heard in court before there's any chance of actually collecting signatures. And again, this is all about not that you can start a recall effort. It's the ability to go out and legally collect signatures to recall a politician. That's what's before the judges right well,
0: now. Well, and the interesting thing, too, is the, the, there's two different constituencies here. You have the entire city of Seattle who... Was the pool of signatories for the petition for Mayor Durkin, but just District Three. For Shama Samant, because it would be unfair to have people mm-hmm. outside her district that didn't have a voice in voting for her mm-hmm. decide on her recall. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yep. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see how all of this plays out. Matt Markovich, thank you so much. You're welcome. Anytime. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogola. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in the Apple Podcast Store. And if you like our content, also check out some of our other Como News podcasts, including Lifebeat with Marina. Rockinger, our hourly news updates, and so much more, all available at comonews.com podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening and have a good week.